Welcome to the Polaris PT Podcast. Join us as we dive into all aspects of health and wellness, from physical and mental to relationships and spirituality with leading experts and luminaries from a broad spectrum of specializations. I'm your host, Dr. Brig Woods, performance physical therapist and owner of Polaris PT and Wellness. On the podcast today, I have Will O'Connell. Will is the co-owner of the Foundry Gym Queen Creek with his girlfriend, Brittany Konke. He's been a trainer and a coach for 20 years. He is CrossFit Level 2 certified, USA Weightlifting Level 1 Sports Performance, USA Weightlifting Referee, affiliated with USA Rugby. He's a power athlete, multi-sport athlete in swimming, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, mountain biking, rugby, power and Olympic style weightlifting, CrossFit, and most recently, ultra running. Will also had made a huge comeback from a horrific back injury where he wasn't sure if he was ever going to be able to work out or do anything again. But most importantly, Will is father to a 10-year-old daughter. So welcome, Will, to the podcast. Hey, what's up, Will? Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Dude, thanks for coming down. I know it was a you know far journey just down the road. Yeah, <laughs> not too far. <laughs> <laughs> now... Have you lived in Arizona before or are you California? No. Yeah, the uh, first time in Arizona I was uh, raised in New Mexico, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Oh, for real? Yep. And uh, I moved to California in 2015. So I was there for six years before coming to Arizona. Oh, so you spent pretty much almost your entire life in. Almost my entire life, other than. In Santa Fe. Yep. Other than being away at school and then coming back home. Dude, I. So. I had never been to like Santa Fe or Taos, that sort of area before. And then we went because we were looking for Forest Fen. Right. Yep. So we, we, I was, I was all in on, I was convinced I was going to find Forest Fen's treasure. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know who Forest Fen is, maybe you can actually tell better than I could because you grew up there. Yeah, so Forrest Fenn, um, he was an author and uh, a historian, and he had a fortune, um, essentially, and um, he decided that he was going to take his fortune up in the mountains and hide it somewhere and uh, basically create a... what do you call it? A, a poem or a, a, poem a chase or, or something? A, a chase to have people locate his treasure. And for over 15 years now, people have been searching for this treasure well, up they in finally the mountains. found it. I think somebody finally found it. Yeah. Yeah. Forrest, Forrest finally, he's like, yeah, I confirmed it. He, the dude found it. Yep. Uh, it was, no, it was, it was wild. Dude wrote a poem and a book and that was all you had to go on to find this guy's treasure. Right. And it was like legit Goonies, like pirate treasure. Exactly. That's what I was going to say is it was like a treasure hunt. Yeah. yeah. Like it was like pre-Columbian artifacts, gold nuggets, like gold coins, yep. like real deal yeah, stuff. I mean, they had um, people from the Smithsonian contacting people that had been searching for treasure and wanted to be involved in their search. And um, I know that they uh, were really interested in being a part of the search process. Um, and Forrest Fenn had made a comment that he didn't want the Smithsonian, he didn't want archaeologists out there searching for his treasure, that the idea was that it was everyday people um, that he wanted to have out there looking for his treasure. Well, yeah, because he, I mean, he said, he goes, I get stories all the time. People that never even found it that, you know, they reconnected with a family member and they both worked on it together and built yep. their, healed their relationship or people that didn't get off the couch. They finally got off the couch and went and had an experience with one of their kids or, yep. you know, that was, that was the whole point. And he was 
just I read his book, super eclectic, like interesting guy, like real yeah. life sort of Indiana Jones type. Exactly. Type, yeah. Type guy. So and along a, with that, like getting people out into wilderness too is a huge um, goal of his. And that's, you know, he, he created this map based on some of the most beautiful places in New Mexico. And um, so I think that was another uh, purpose of his was to expose the beauty of New Mexico and get people out into the mountains and stuff like that, looking for it. Well, yeah. And, and seriously though, no, like no offense to other parts of New Mexico, but my experience with New Mexico was, was Gallup. <laughs> yeah. And Albuquerque. Yeah. Right. Now there's some pretty places, kind of the mountains around Albuquerque, but absolutely. But I remember like driving on our way to Santa Fe, we went up through Gallup and you cross over in New Mexico, the land of enchantment. And I'm like, you know, there's yeah. no land of enchantment. This place looks like where dreams go to die. Like, and then we got up into Santa Fe and Taos and I was like, completely changes. Holy cow. This place is amazing. You're right. I like, and otherwise wouldn't have probably had any real drive to get there if, again, hadn't been for Forrest Fenn and his treasure. Yeah, and I, th- I get that a lot about Santa Fe is that it's, uh, it's high desert and, and people don't even realize that it's up in the mountains. They think that New Mexico is just desert landscape, a lot like Arizona. And, I mean, you get up into Santa Fe and you're over 7,000 feet up in the mountains and you've got the Sangre de Cristos, which is the big mountain range. And there's a ski area up there that's really popular. And um, some of the most beautiful hiking that I've ever done in my life. And um, you're surrounded by that in Santa Fe. And not not only to mention that, but the culture in New Mexico is is beautiful and um, there's such a diverse culture between Native Americans and the Spanish um people that have settled in New Mexico for centuries, but, uh, it creates in a really interesting community of people. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a white kid. I grew up with Hispanics and with native Americans and, um, you know, my, my mom spoke fluent Spanish growing up oh, and wow. my neighbors were from Mexico. And so I was, I was exposed to that growing up. And I think that really kind of helped, um, pave a path, I guess you could say yeah. for me. So, yeah. One of my, one of my, like one of my best friends, uh, he's Navajo yep. or he's quarter and he grew up in, in Gallup. His mom is Navajo, his dad, actually a white guy, but speaks Navajo. And so anyway, we went back up there to, uh, to Gallup and then into Chinle. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, uh, it was wild though. Like Gallup, my experience at Gallup, I, I was unprepared for being, the dude sticking out like a sore thumb, right? Being the white yeah. guy in, in Gallup, who, yeah, I was the it was the minority, yeah. And what a cool culture, like the like the the pueblos and stuff, and yeah, man, Taos is Taos was gorgeous too. Yeah, and I think uh, one of the things I experienced growing up, and then even into my career a little bit, um, I started working in behavioral health for a short period of time, and. Um, initially was doing some provider services and then got into the community a little bit more and was doing um, like funding management for the state of New Mexico and Department of Corrections. And part of that was working with the tribes directly because um, obviously a big problem on the tribal lands right now is alcoholism and substance abuse. And me being in fitness, um, I was really... 
uh, passionate about that and passionate about helping people overcome that and recover from that. And so having the opportunity to work with the tribes directly and um, meet with leadership and and get to know them and what their what their people were like um, was amazing. It was a really great experience. And I feel like culturally um, it enriched me and, and, you know, we get this view of, of um, these tribal lands that are, some of them are suffering really badly. And then there's others that are really affluent and they have these amazing casinos and they have millions and millions of dollars and they're, they're doing really well. But what a lot of people don't realize is that these casinos that are making billions of dollars a year, like they, they take that back to their community and they, they buy homes for their tribal people and, and vehicles and food and stuff like that to provide a better life for them. And that's really cool. Yeah, no, the, the, um, the whole tribal thing, I went up with my buddy, we got to go up to Chin Lee mm-hmm. and spend time up there with his family. Like his great grandmother still lived in a Hogan and like, I got to meet the family and got to meet everybody. And it, and even at one point got to talk to his great grandmother through, through a translator. Cause she didn't speak any English. Right, yeah. She spoke 100% Navajo, Navajo. Mm-hmm. and no, they're an incredibly, I love the Navajo people. I love the native people. It is such a cool experience to be up there. And if, if you're in, you're in exactly right. Yeah. Like you, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're in, you're in. And I was talking with, um, my buddy's mom about that. And I just said, Hey, I said, there's a whole bunch of like amazing resources up here. I said, how come, but yet there's still a tremendous amount of poverty. Yep. And part of that was, as she just said, you know, as a, as a general rule, we have a hard time trusting anybody from outside of the tribe due to right some of the abuses and stuff that they exactly. suffered, suffered in the past and I don't and I don't blame them for that. So how so what was that like? I mean, how did you did you feel like you were able to get through as far as to them and in some of the health and fitness and wellness stuff? Yeah. Um so the the, the program that I was in charge of managing was uh it was a federally funded program called Access to Recovery. It's ATR. Um and at the time, New Mexico was the only the third state in the U.S. that um, was provided federal funds to be able to run this program through behavioral health management. And essentially what it is, is it's a voucher program that um, the government gives a, a certain amount of funding. In our case, it was um, over $9 million. And with the funding, we're able to provide vouchers to people that were homeless or were suffering from substance abuse or had just been released from incarceration and um, essentially didn't have jobs or they didn't have the money to seek out this, the treatment services they needed to be able to keep them out of jail or keep them away from substance abuse. And this voucher was good for physical therapy, occupational therapy. Um, they'd be able to go to alcohol, alcoholism treatment, um, be able to receive medications for, uh, to treat substance abuse, opioid, uh, um, treatment and stuff like that. And once their voucher was up, they were able to get another one. And it really just depended on how much funding was out there. But, you know, uh, the tribe does a really great job of taking care of their community, but 
um, at the same time, there are still people that are in poverty that live on the tribal lands and yeah. um, that don't have access to those services. And so this program was very, very successful. And New Mexico did such a good job at running this program that we actually ended up having multiple states after that model our program. Um, and so for me, it was uh, it was amazing because I, I led that program for, for the entire state um, for multiple years. And uh, so I, I got a lot of value out of it because of that. No, that's awesome. And so then how, obviously public service, but how did you transfer from, you know, working for the state and public service into other, I guess, what you do now or was there something in between too? So I've always worked in fitness. Um, when I graduated in 2002, I, um, I moved back home and, um, was working in physical therapy, actually in a physical therapy practice as a tech for about five years in a small acute care hospital in, in New Mexico. And, uh, I had, that was kind of my first exposure to, to treatment services and working with athletes. Um, I had done some, you know, personal training and athletic training at my university before I moved. And this was really like my first experience working in a treatment setting and, and, um, a big part of our patient population were geriatric. They were older and, um, on the other end of it, we had a lot of, uh, high school athletes and youth athletes. Um, and so I got to treat both sides of them and yeah, like way, um, way opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah. But a very, very small office. So it was a little more intimate and it gave the therapist time to sit with me and work with me and teach me about what they were doing. And so even though I never went to PT school, I feel like I learned so much from these guys that, you know, my approach to fitness later on and even to now has been more on movement and more on, um, being able to protect the body and take care of the body so that you're, you can train forever, you know? And so that was, um, after college, that was where I started working initially. And, um, in, when I was in Santa Fe, I started playing rugby, um, on a men's league and I played rugby for, for many years. Did you play rugby in college or no? No, no. Just discovered it after college? I, I was a swimmer. Oh, okay. That's right. Yep. So I didn't start playing rugby till later. And, uh, when I found it, I, I found a men's club in Santa Fe that was really great and, um, started playing pretty competitively and, you know, and I was a lot younger then and could, could take hits and could tackle and was a lot faster than I am now. And, uh, what I found is that my body was starting to get a little beat up. And, um, so I, uh, I thought, well, maybe I should start finding something to help me with, with my body. Like, should I go to yoga or do something like that? And, uh, a friend recommended that I do Brazilian jujitsu. Um, and so I had a friend in Santa Fe that owned a, a, a jujitsu academy. And so I joined his academy and, um, I had, I had never been a wrestler, never had that kind of experience where, you know, you get to really get carryover into jujitsu later in life. And, um, so I started doing jujitsu and was, was a very beginner when I started there. Um, it was an amazing school. I learned a lot. Do you still do jujitsu? No, I haven't done it in years. Was it, was it a, was it his own kind of school or was it like a Gracie Baja school? It was a Gracie Baja school. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously like world renowned, um, teachings and my, my professor at the time was, um, was very accomplished and just an amazing professor. Um, and also a really good friend too. So that was cool. Uh, but what, what led me into like 
straight fitness and getting involved with CrossFit and stuff like that is, um, I would show up to jujitsu and I'd be in the class and I'd see people walking out of the other side of the gym that had been in there working out. And it was like one small half of the gym that this gym was these, uh, these guys were training in. And, um, I finally went over there one day and I saw these guys like squatting and, and doing some barbell work and stuff like that. And I was like, Oh, I didn't even know there was a gym over here and started talking to the owner at the time. And he's like, yeah, this is, this is our CrossFit gym. And at the time I had no idea what CrossFit was, you know, this was back, you know, before 2010. Right. Well, so like in college, when you were swimming, were you guys not doing weight training? No, we did weight training, but oh, okay. you know, and it's funny cause I actually posted something about this the other day on my Instagram is like weight training for swimmers back then look completely different. You know, you weren't seeing barbell snatching you weren't seeing oh, that's right i was you were talking yeah some yeah. dude who's like this is the guy who's about to set the world record for this yeah caleb dressel yeah. is like the fastest swimmer in the world right now did a, a hang power snatch the other day at 100 kilos like yeah you know and he's six foot four you know an amazing sprinter but you just don't you never saw that back then you know it was a lot of band resisted training it was a lot of um stability and trunk work um, we did do barbell work, but it was very light. And, okay. you know, if, if you were benching, it was like a quarter of your body weight, but you would do it for 70 reps in a workout. So it was very high volume. And f- for my, for my build in particular, you know, I'm not, I'm not a tall lean guy. Like I've, I carry a lot of muscle mass in my legs. I'm only five, eight, like I'm not your ideal picture of a swimmer and a butterfly. Um, no, I was a backstroker and I am her. That's right. Yeah. And mid distance freestyle too. But, um, so, you know, they, they obviously were concerned about putting a barbell in my hands too, because they didn't want me to start packing on muscle because I was kind of at the prime age for, for muscle growth. Um, so my, my freshman year, I never touched a barbell. Um, only stuff did in the gym was band resisted work and, and mobility work. And then, uh, sophomore year got in the gym, started lifting a lot and put on over 20 pounds of muscle. Um, that basically I carried all the way through, uh, graduation. So I came into, did your times go up though? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely got much faster. And I think, you know, now we're seeing a lot of research with athletes, whether it's endurance athletes or, um, or sprinters or whatever in swimming is that, you know, you can be muscular and still be very fast. And, uh, and I'd say swimming even more in particular than, than track or another speed event. Yeah. Uh, but some of these swimmers these days look a lot like bodybuilders where back then they were you know, they're very lean. They didn't have a lot of muscle mass on them. And when you look at Caleb Dressel, I mean, as a sprinter, you think he would be lean and, and fast and he's actually very muscular and he does, he does CrossFit on a regular basis. Like he posts on his Instagram, you know, videos of him training in his basement with his dad and his brother. And he's got like a full CrossFit setup in his garage. Well, I mean, we go back and look at like Michael Phelps in his early career. Yep. I mean, you look at that guy and you go, really? You're the fastest guy on the planet? Like, right. you look like a, like a, almost like a skinny fat guy. Yeah. Or like a fat skinny dude. And then you got like, you got just genetic specimens like Michael well, yeah, Phelps who, uniquely... you know, like his torso, you know, <laughs> yeah. when you, when you look at how long his torso is and, you know, he has webs between his toes that a lot of people don't have. I mean, he's got very specific traits that, you know, made him 
an amazing swimmer, but also like he started swimming for one of the best coaches in the world when he was very young and he swam for that same coach all the way through his Olympics. And so, yeah, Bob Bowman's an amazing coach and, and really did an incredible job with Michael. And the thing with swimming is like, all right, you, whether you're going to go to the Olympics or not, that's the deciding factor on, do I stay in the pool or do I go find a job and do something else? And, you know, for me, like I wasn't going to go to the Olympics as a swimmer, And at the time there was no such thing as professional swimming where now there is there's circuit leagues now where swimmers are actually getting paid a salary to swim as a professional. And, um, back then there wasn't, it can't be more than like 50,000 or 40,000. Can it? No. Some of these, I mean, some of these guys are making six figures as swimmers. Um, I know Ryan Lochte when he was on the circuit, he was making over a hundred grand, but that's also, you get a lot of sponsorship deals through TYR and speedo and, and places like that too. And so they're, they're definitely getting some help there, but I mean, these guys, like once they're done with their Olympic season, you know, what's next for the next four years, it's not like they're going to sit on the couch, you know? So, um, for me, it was like, well, it's time to figure out what I'm going to do here pretty quick because I'm not going to the Olympics and I'm not going to get paid to swim. So I got to find something that I'm good at. (laughs) And, uh, fitness was that for me. And, um, I found the same passion with fitness that I had in my athletic career. And, um, you know, my exposure through physical therapy and then, you know, finding kind of finding my way into fitness, into CrossFit. And at the time, like the methodology was kind of new to everybody. And that's when gyms were still, well, were still gritty and hard. And, you know, you came into a CrossFit workout and you just destroyed yourself and you walked yeah. out and maybe got rhabdo. Yeah. Maybe got rhabdo once or twice. Maybe got rhabdo. There was no air conditioning. Yeah. Yep. And right. then, but then you showed up again tomorrow, you know, yeah. and you did it again and again and again. And you just fell in love with it. And it was one of those. It's like somebody know, it's rented like, a storage unit. Exactly. Right. And yeah. like put a gym in there. Well, our first space was 800 square feet, you know, that we shared with this jujitsu academy. And it was two, we had two or three squat racks. We had one, one pull-up bar. Jeez. Oh, um, we were training on jujitsu mats. Like it wasn't a hard floor at all. So it was like the area that we had to squat in was probably like 200 square feet or 300 square feet. It was pretty small. Do, have you, do you know the story of how, of San Francisco CrossFit of Kelly oh, Sturette's yeah. place Absolutely. where he started in like the parking lot of the bargain basement or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Like to hear him tell that story, I was like, you have got to be kidding me. Yeah. So I heard he and even Juliet, his wife had told the story too. Like she's like, yeah, no, we like welded or like built everything. Yeah. And then we covered it with a tarp yeah. like in between sessions and like through a uh threw some of it in a shipping container and hoped that nobody stole any of it yeah his office for a long time was in a shipping container yeah so. he was he said we finally <laughs> hung a sign on it that caught, said the pain cave yeah yeah and and juliet his wife was like yeah so we kind of did this thing over here in the in the parking lot kelly would see patients occasionally in his shipping container you know we tried to make it nice inside we call it the pain cave she's like he never took a note he never like yeah. And that's just kind of what we did. And then yep. next thing you know, they're, they they told me at one point, I'm going to totally screw it up. Good thing is Kelly and Juliet probably aren't listening anyway. But like at one point, they had something like 10 to 15 coaches. They were running a full-time, like from sunup to sundown, no real breaks in classes. Yeah. And they were in the Presidio. Yep. 
Which like, is one of the nicest areas in San Francisco. Well, yeah, they were renting space in the Presidio, I think, at like $25,000 a month. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've followed Kelly for years and years, and I actually went through his 365 project when he first oh. put that out. Okay. And, you know, essentially, for you guys that don't know, was doing a, a different mobility drill every single day and putting a video on it and talking about the benefits of it. And he did this every single day for 365 days, and it was completely free. And he would do it in odd locations. One day it would be in his garage at home with his kids running around him and like hitting him with lacrosse balls and other days it would be out in the pouring rain in the parking lot and they're at their San Francisco gym and it was just a it was just the coolest thing and I think that was um, really like the first exposure for CrossFit into like taking care of your body and like doing this doing these mobility drills every day and um I think it kind of, it changed the mentality for a lot of competitors and a lot of uh, people that were doing CrossFit because they didn't, they weren't receiving that from their coaches at the time because even their coaches weren't knowledgeable in that, in that side of the business. And so, um, I think Kelly like kind of started a trend with that oh, and obviously sure. it's taken off since then. And there's, there's so many amazing resources out there for, for mobility work and, and learning how to take care of yourself at home. If you have a garage gym or something like that, he's, he's he's the godfather he's the reason why guys like me and a bunch of others of us practice the way that we practice right like and and that we work in this space right we work in a crossfit gym or we treat these athletes and and teach people how to do this on their own he was uh he was it was interesting he was talking about it one day telling the story that he almost got kicked out of pt school yeah. They wanted to get rid of him. Yeah. They're like, what you're doing is dangerous. You're going to hurt people. Exactly. And he was like, no, I'm not. This is like, this is what people need. People do need to work with these implements, barbell, kettlebell, dumbbell, but also we need to be doing this mobility stuff. Right. And like just the other day, his he posted a video on his Instagram, but he's like, look, getting work done by a physical therapist is awesome, but you don't always have one in your back pocket. So <laughs> like the ready state, right? It was obviously yeah. an advertisement for the ready state, but yeah. You know, Juliet was saying like, hey, we've, uh, you know, Kelly was giving away so much free content. Mm-hmm. We finally had to figure out how to make some money to monetize it. it right. Yeah. And that's when like Mobility Wad came in and then the rebrand into the Ready State. But you're right. Yeah. Like it totally shifted the mentality of, yeah, you need to be strong, but you also need to be strong in these shapes and positions and, and have yeah. mobility, not necessarily be flexible, but be mobile. Exactly. Yeah. Which is kind of the whole thing with the TB12 stuff, right? I don't know much about TB12. Have you looked much into Tom Brady's thing? I haven't. No. no neither have I. No. So I guess we can't really talk about it because neither one of us know anything about <laughs> yeah, it. Otherwise, really it's just that. speculation and we sound like idiots. <laughs> and there's somebody out there listening who's like, correction? Yeah. TB12 is actually this. <laughs> so Educate us. Call in. Yeah, if I had a call in line, right? <laughs> it's not that kind of show. Uh, but... Yeah. So no, the mobility stuff and that entrance into CrossFit. So then you worked out of that CrossFit space in that jujitsu gym for a while. I did. Yeah. We were, um, I was in that space for a year and, uh, I actually became a partner of the CrossFit gym at that point um, oh, cool. because I, 
like I was saying, fell in love with it pretty early on. And, and I've always had a competitive drive to me. Like I, since I was a kid, you know, racing BMX and, and doing the stuff I did when I was a kid, I was always competitive and I always wanted to win. And, uh, so CrossFit is that environment, you know, and it, it has been that environment forever where you come in and you, even if you're not competing against somebody else, you're competing against yourself and you want to be fast and you want to be strong. And so, I, I found that love in CrossFit and, um, my, my partner was, uh, my best friend, you know, and we, we agreed on everything. We did really well together and, uh, we moved into a bigger space a year later, um, with 25 members and, uh, we moved into 2,500 square feet. So we upgraded quite a bit Yeah, and our membership nearly doubled almost immediately. And it's awesome. Uh, but it was always a very, very strong community. And I would say that there are a lot of downsides to CrossFit, but there are very, very many um, benefits of CrossFit. And one of them, one of the most important ones, in my opinion, is the, the community aspect of it and, and being able to build a community that feels like family and um, takes away from the intimidation in a way because it is it can be an intimidating environment but when you come in and you're welcomed by a community of people it's a little bit easier to want to stay at that point so uh it was pieces of that that I have taken with me and I've you know over the years put in practice my own business and then you know and then now with my own gym like uh, community is huge for me. And that's always going to be the most important part over anything. Like I can, I can get somebody strong. I can get somebody fit, but if they're not comfortable in this space because they're intimidated or they don't feel like they fit in some way, then that's a problem for me. Um, so you know, on day one, when they walk in the gym, I want them to feel like this is a place that I want to be at because of the people that are here then they receive amazing training, amazing coaching. They walk out achieving their goals and then they're like, now I know why I'm here. Yeah. You know, so that's forever since I've been involved in this industry has been a goal of mine. And, uh, you know, moving to California and working in a CrossFit gym there, it was a big change. And one of the things I was most afraid of when I left New Mexico was leaving my community because the gym is a gym, you know, like, yeah, it's a cool space. We've done a lot of really cool things in here. We've, um, we've grown so much, but the community is the glue that holds everything together and starting over again and feeling like, no, well, now I'm that person that's walking into a, it may be an intimidating space and not knowing anybody and having to build relationships. That was tough. And, um, so yeah, I, I guess that was the hardest part when I went to California, but um, I got really lucky in finding a very, very similar community in, in California that I was a part of and, you know, in a different different ways, of course, but um, it was, I'm very thankful for it and, and I learned a lot while I was there as well. And uh, so, yeah. Well, no, and to that point, there's only been, I, one, maybe two times, that I've ever walked into another CrossFit gym and felt like, okay, nobody wants me here. Yeah. Right. Like, I mean, and I've been, I've been to CrossFit in tons of places in California, Utah, Nevada, Arizona, haven't done New Mexico yet, but like 
Florida, like all over the country. Yeah. Idaho, middle of nowhere, Idaho. And, you know, you walk in and everybody, sure, every gym has its own culture and flavor and, right? And some are more competitive than others and some are just just neighborhood place where everybody hangs out and yeah. nobody cares. It's like average Joe's, but everybody's still working hard and loves each other. But there's, there's only been like one or two times where I've walked in and people are like, yeah, no, we're all, everybody here's a fire breather and, uh, exactly. We can smell that you're not. So <laughs> <laughs> don't talk to me. Yeah. Your kind is not welcome here. <laughs> yeah. There, somebody was telling me about a place in, I think it's North Carolina. It's called uh, CrossFit pale horse. Mm-hmm. And they're so CrossFit Pale Horse Outwork Death is their motto. And there's no warm up. It's you show up if you want to warm up, you get here 30 minutes early, we start the class, and it's go hard for an hour and trying to outwork death. Yep. Unfortunately, <laughs> I, I think that there are still quite a bit of gyms out there like that. Yeah. You know, and part of it is. It's not that they don't know how to do that stuff. They just don't want to do it. They're no. just doing the bare minimum, getting people in the door and out the door, making them sweat, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. No. And well, so here's something interesting because I know that you, at least from our previous conversation, stuff, endurance like racing, right? Like yep. you've done, uh, why am I drawing a blank on what those races are called? Ultra marathon. There you go. You've done ultra marathons. Um, and, that's a whole totally different kind of thing, right? Completely like, different I mean, animal. Yeah. yeah. Now, but you still through all that strength train, right? Yep. Every day. Now, like David Goggins, right? Is David Goggins has made himself quite a name by being like, dude, you know, who's going to carry the boats? Just, you know, it doesn't matter yep. if you're hurt, keep going. Um, you know, and I like a lot of what David Goggins says, mm-hmm. right? I like that kind of mentality, but like, do you really have to have that sort of level of like, if you're going to do ultra, do you, I mean, is there a certain point where it's like, yeah, your body's just going to get wrecked no matter what, who's going to carry the boats? Yeah. I no, mean, <laughs> you know, endurance, endurance sports, like that was kind of always my thing. And, you know, swimming, coming from a swimming background, like I, I felt like I had a really good capacity for endurance sports. Um, I had done some 24 hour mountain bike races and I had done some trail runs, you know, in my younger years and stuff and was always really good at that stuff and never ever crossed my mind to participate in an ultra marathon. Um, I did one half marathon on the road and that was like the worst time of my life. Um, I, I despise running on the road. I think it's the most boring thing ever. Sure. And so, but I love being in the mountains and that's, you know, that was my childhood was growing up in the mountains and skiing and and snowboarding and stuff like that. And, and, um, so I loved being up in the mountains and when you run up in the mountains, there's just something completely different about it. It's very euphoric and you know, the, the saying of runners high, like that's a, that's an actual thing. Like they've done research on it that, um, endorphins are created when you run and you, and it elevates your mood. And so, you know, I experienced that obviously. And when, uh, a friend of mine who is a, he's an endurance coach in California and, uh, he, he coaches cross country. He's an amazing runner himself and has done multiple ultras. And, 
um, you know, me and him were kind of just joking one day and he's like, yeah, I'm going to sign up for this race. And he's, and I was like, oh, that's awesome. And we had been doing some training runs together up until that point, And I had never even like brought it up or considered it. And, and then one day we were out on this run and he's like, oh, you should sign up for Kodiak. And I'm like, I don't even know what that is, but I'll take, I'll look it up. And so I went and looked up this race up in the, up in the mountains in California and big bear and. I'm like, oh, this sounds like a lot of fun. I'm going to go ahead and register. And I just registered for it kind of on the spot. And then uh, I told Britt and my girlfriend that I signed up for this race and, you know, no planning or anything. And I'm like, oh, it's about three and a half, four months away. Maybe I should start training kind of seriously for How this race. How far is the race? Um, so I did 100K, which is 65 miles. Forget that on three months, three yeah. to four months three of training. Months and I I mean, how come, far? How far were you running at that point? Like, how many miles a day or week were um, you putting in? So honestly, I I started actually like just hiking again in. Um, it was either March or April of that year. <laughs> and when like, was the race? Going on six nine mile hikes, but not running at all, just no. hiking with my friends. And, um, you know, we'll get into this conversation, but I was coming essentially off of a a really serious back injury that I wasn't able to do any of that stuff. And so getting back up into the mountains was kind of the first step. And so the hiking and stuff like that was, was part of that journey. But then, um, I would get up on the top of these Hills with my, with my friends. And then I'd be like, Oh, probably pretty fun to run back down. And so I'd run back down and started like really enjoying that and so that's when i started talking to josh about going on trail runs together and and wanting to train with him a little bit more to help my running and uh so we did some longer stuff that was you know 10 to 10 to 13 miles nothing real crazy and yeah, obviously I, like I, I hear 10 to 13 miles and i go yeah that's that's a that's a dumpster fire waiting to happen for yeah me. yeah but it was, you know, we started off very slow and, sure. and, you know, with trail running, like a lot of times you're hiking the uphills and, and running the downhills and running the flats. So you're, you're not busting out like a six minute pace. So that was always, yeah, that, that's because legitimately that was always a question I had, right? Cause like I enjoy on some level, I enjoy trail running, but I was always of the, like, and maybe something I didn't understand about run, trail running. Cause I'm not necessarily, I don't brand myself a runner and, and. Just not a, you know, that's not a world I live in a lot of, yeah. but I, I enjoy being up in the mountains, like you said, and, and I really enjoy backpacking, rucking, and even enjoy running down like the downhills and stuff. Yep. But so in trail running, like you're not, nobody looks at you less. Like if you actually don't run the uphills. Absolutely not. I think oh. so. I mean, even during my race, <laughs> you know, the, the most elite runners in the field were, were hiking uphill. Oh, and you think about it, I can trail you know, run then. depending on the type of trail run you're doing. So you've got to consider like elevation gain and, and what the terrain looks like, because if it's just a flat trail, yeah. you know, obviously like those guys are going to run the entire time. And, well, sure. you know, Arizona has one of the, one of the biggest trail run, um, communities and, but obviously like we live in flat desert and so there's not a whole lot of, of really hilly terrain here or mountainous running unless you're up in Northern Arizona where well, a lot of the most, actually the probably the best trail runner in the world for the men right now, he's in Flagstaff, you yeah. know, his team's in Flagstaff. A lot of people train. don't realize that that's crazy high elevation yeah. up there. But yeah, like, but even if you're like, I don't know if, if I've gone out and tried to go run like in the superstitions or out like 
other like santans or whatever yeah we just have tons of like loose rock yep exactly it's not flat there's sand there's loose rock you know and turn your ankle and even when you're like up in the santans for example because we hiked up there just a couple weeks ago is it's there's some spots that are like steep yeah and you're not going to be running up that kind of stuff. Like you're, you're lucky just walking up it oh, and getting up it without falling down. I so I feel so bad now, but, um, you know, the mountains in California, there's beautiful mountains. Uh, I lived in Temecula, which was kind of centrally located between the beach and, and the, and a big mountain range the San Jacinto's, which oh, are yeah. up over 11,000 feet. And, uh, um, you know, within an hour, I was able to get to uh, Mount Baldy, which is just outside mm. of LA, and then uh, Mount San Gorgonio, which is the highest mountain in Southern California. Okay. And, you know, those are all within an hour. So we would, every Saturday, would go out and do a long run. And our long run started, you know, 15 miles. And then by the end of our training block, we were up over, you know, 22, 23 miles in a day um, and over 8,000 feet of elevation gain. And obviously it took a lot of work and a lot of recovery to be able to run those types of runs every weekend, especially for me, because I was still weight training during the week. I was going to CrossFit two or three days a week. I was doing the class workout. I wasn't doing any different programming, uh, specific to running. And I just trust the process. And I know that the methodology behind CrossFit is, is good for runners and it is good for endurance athletes if it's, if it's applied appropriately. And, um, you know, there were days that I'd come in and if I knew that the Metcon was something that was going to affect my training for running, then I would modify it. Uh, and it worked really well for me, but there were days, you know, I'd, I'd run 24 miles on a Saturday. And then on Monday I was, I was back squatting at 90%, you know, and I never had issues with it. Now, did you run during the middle of the week or was it strictly? No, I'd run during the week too. So I would do, I do shorter runs almost every day between five and 10 miles. Um, and a lot of that was road running, but I would get up, um, where we lived at, there was a, there was a trail system across the road. So I was able to go run up in there a little bit. So I would do like four to seven miles up in the Hills. Um, but not nearly like the same kind of terrain that we'd be up in the mountains. Um, there's a, there's a mountain right outside of Temecula called Montserrat and it's a really good training mountain because it's, uh, relatively short. It's like 4.7 miles round trip. And, um, really steep elevation gain. So it was good for me to be able to go like in the middle of the day and go get in an hour up there on this hill and just work on my, um, my elevation training and, um, running on unstable terrain. And really like that was where I spent a lot of my time training for this race. But yeah, so my, my ultra was in August on August 20th. And, uh, you know, showing up, I felt amazing. Like I didn't have any issues with my body. I felt, um, really strong and, uh, leading up to the race, obviously like finding out your nutrition and what works for you, because I'd say a majority of people that drop from, uh, ultra races or ultra endeavors like that, it's, it's nutrition. Um, it's, it's more mental and nutrition than it is physical. Um, because you know, you can walk, you can hike. And a lot of these races have cutoff times that are reasonable to where you could walk a fast pace and still make cutoff times and and complete the race. Gotcha. But, um, 
but if you want to go out and you want to run and you want to push yourself, like your nutrition has to be on point. Otherwise you're going to suffer. And I feel like a, uh, a lot of people drop for that reason. So up and up until the race, he was finding what worked for my body. And what I found was that, you know, gels weren't doing really well for me. And, um, I had a hard time with anything that had a lot of sugar in it. If I was like one day I took a whole bag of Skittles and I ate like a whole bag of Skittles on this trail run. And like, I felt the good, I felt good energy from it, but then afterwards just felt terrible and felt miserable. And so, um, you know, I started doing a lot of research on different products and, uh, I found tailwind and I found spring energy, which I found were the two most, um, like useful for me from a digestive standpoint. So what but is, also, I don't know what tailwind or so tailwind is a powdered, it's a, it's a powdered nutrition essentially. Like okay. you get electrolytes from it, you get, um, some other balanced aminos okay. and, uh, so it's like a pixie stick. Kind of. Yeah. It comes in a bag. Like you just have, you have a scoop. And what I would do is I would throw a scoop or two in my, in my bladder, um, in okay. my race pack and I would just sip on it, you know, during my race or during my trail runs. And I'd get a lot of my electrolytes from that rather than having to like chug Gatorade or gotcha. do something like that. So you're not like snorting it. As exactly. You're go- okay. Yeah. And this, it can't like the, the, line off the powder was made from like natural ingredients. So it didn't come, you know, it wasn't like powdered sugar and stuff that they put in Gatorade and, right. and stuff like that. So. Um, yeah, tailwind was amazing. And I kept tailwind in my pack my entire race and drank it the entire time. Um, and then from a more like solidified nutrition, I was doing, um, spring energy makes, uh, these sauce packs that Hmm. they look like gels, but it's actually like applesauce. Oh, cool. And, um, they have a really good balance carb to protein ratio. Um, and you, take a packet every 45 to an hour. And, um, I would just stuff like six of those in my pack and between aid stations would try to get through a couple of them. And, uh, that paired along with the tailwind is what really like got me through my race. And, you know, I packed like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and a bunch of junk that I kept in my drop bags. But what's funny is I got to my drop bags and I didn't even want that stuff because I felt like I was, I was, hydrated and I felt like I had the nutrition that I needed. Yeah. You know, I'd have like some potato chips from the aid station or eat some pickles real quick and like candy ginger and stuff like that just to help keep my stomach settled. But yeah, I I mean, nutritionally like never suffered during my race. And I, I would say, I know for a fact that in my division, um, for the males, 50% of the field dropped out of the race. Oh, for real? Yeah. There were 64 registered and only 30, just over 30 people finished in the men. Oh my gosh. So it's a, not only a, a very, very difficult course from an, from a elevation perspective, but it was hot in the middle of the day. Um, when we started in the morning at 6 AM, it was, uh, below 40 degrees and, you know, we had this really big climb up the hill and up the ski area in big bear. And then we dropped into a Canyon called Siberia Canyon that, um, it was steep and loose. And then by the time we climbed out of Siberia Canyon, it was over 80 degrees in the middle of the day. And that was only by like mile 25. Which so is rough. That is especially rough. Especially in the mountains, like yeah. 80 degrees. Yeah. It just sound... hits you different. You yeah. know, the sun hits you different. And so, um, I think by mile 35 to 40, there were already a lot of people dropping out of the race. And that's just so early on for a race like that. And, 
Um, the race continued to a hundred miles. So that it is a, it is a hundred mile race. Um, but the they have a hundred K okay. division as well. Yeah. And the hundred milers, I mean, some of these guys that were continuing on past where I finished, I was just in awe to, to see some of them. And the guy who won the race is in his fifties and he ran a hundred miles in something over 13 hours, just over 13 hours. My hundred K took 18 hours and 45 minutes. It's a long day, man. It is a long day. day. No, but I could start in the dark and ended like the next morning. Started at 6 AM and then finished at one 30 in the morning the following day. Oh my gosh. And, uh, you know, only a couple aid stations. Do you have crew at, so you're not really seeing your friends or your family, um, a lot of the time. And, uh, there were portions in the race where I was by myself without a single soul around for hours and mentally like that starts to wear on you a little bit. And you kind of start thinking about like, what if this happened or what if a bear attacked me or something like that? You, you just start to get these weird thoughts in your mind. And, you know, there's, there's so many ultra runners that have experienced like hallucination and stuff sure. like that when they get nutritionally deprived and, I could see easily how that would happen to somebody. It didn't happen to me, luckily, but I can see how that happened to people. Um, but yeah, it's it's like nothing I've ever experienced. It was definitely the hardest physical endeavor I've ever experienced in my life. And I've done some competitions and I've done some workouts in the gym that I thought I was going to never recover from, but it's different. Like oh, yeah. this is something that not only is it, you know, a workout that finishes in 15 minutes and it takes you two hours to recover from, right? Like this is something that for hours you are suffering and yeah. you are uncomfortable. It takes weeks to recover. And from that it thing. took me weeks and weeks to recover from it. And there were, I mean, up until this day, there's still things that I noticed that I'm like, Oh, that was from my race. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like things I feel with my feet or things I feel with my hips that I've dealt with. And yeah, and had to manage since then. It's like, that was because of my race. And so more importantly than ever coming out of this race, like this is the time to focus on taking care of my body and recovering and approaching my training for recovery. And so I think I've done a really good job at that. Like I have nothing bothering me right now other than like so gen- general soreness. Was your race just this last August? Just last oh, August. Yeah. Is this your first one? First one. Oh. Um, first ultra and, uh, Really awesome because in October, uh, I did the sore neck squatober event. And so basically squatted for 30 days straight and PR'd my, uh, back squat lifetime PR Dude. by 45 pounds. So it was pretty incredible to see like what my body could accomplish just in a couple months, because there was a point after my race, like I was I literally thought that I wasn't going to be able to walk again, <laughs> you know, like my, my feet and my knees were just a wreck. And, um, you know, I thought I did some serious damage and it's, it, it was, it was just me not ever experiencing that before and what that felt like. And, and once I realized like, no, I can manage this and I can come back from it. It was, it was different. Like I was, got back in the gym. I started training again, you know, taking care of my body at home, eating right 
you know, doing all the things. And by October, I felt amazing. And obviously it showed because I was able to squat quite a bit. So, well, what's amazing too about that, right. Is that your body, your body can handle that kind of stuff, but, and probably you may or not have noticed this, this may not have been the case, but I would imagine that just sitting around your house, like just sitting on your couch probably made things a little bit worse for oh, you yeah, absolutely. rather than like, Hey, you know what? I don't feel super great, but I'm going to get up and go for a walk today. Yep. We're going to go walk 30 minutes. I don't have to run it, but yeah. And you know, this as a professional, like we, we preach this to our patients and to our, our members and our clients every day is that movement is medicine. Yeah. Like you got to stay moving. And you know, when you're sore and when you're beat up at the gym, like the best thing you could do is show up and move some more because that, that glide is what's going to get you to feel better, yeah. you know? And so you don't have to go ham at the gym, right? Yep. But yeah, jump on that, jump on that bike. Yeah. Right. Ride that bike for a bit. Go lighter with your weight. But yeah, just keep moving, man. Yeah. And so, you know, that was kind of the the ultra story and um, the experience there. But I think, you know, I definitely want to talk about what I went through with my injury because, yes, it's a, yeah, you know, like, that's, it's an amazing. So when did you hurt your back? Uh, 2019 in November. So what happened? So, um, 2019, it was, com- I was competing a lot in CrossFit, um, probably three times a month I was competing. Did you make region- um, were you like a regionals athlete or a that, games athlete? During that year I was at that level. Yeah. Um, I just never made it far enough the following year in 2020 to actually compete in the open, to compete in the open because I got hurt, uh, right at the beginning of the year. So, um, was competing in November, um, after a long year, had a really successful season and then, um, started noticing some tension in my lower back, uh, by September and wasn't really like super concerned about it. So was still pushing the volume, still pushing the intensity and about October started noticing, um, you know, some sciatic pain down into my left glute and stuff like that. And so I would do some general mobility and stuff like that. And, um, but wasn't really like, uh, focusing on that area in particular and, and spending more time there. And in November I did a competition and caught a, uh, we were doing, um, I'm trying to remember back. So the first event we did for this competition was a hundred wall balls with a 30 pound medicine ball to 11 foot target. Oh, and, uh, we came straight off of the wall ball event to a barbell with exist with the remaining time on the clock. We had to build to a heavy complex of a power clean front squat. And, uh, the first power clean I opened at was like 225, which for me at the time was very light right. and shouldn't have been an issue. And I caught the bar kind of weird and it like knocked me backwards. I just lost my balance and I fell backwards and I felt like a tweak in my knee. And I thought I initially like hurt my knee. So I actually, um, sat out like the next minute and then I went back to the barbell and was able to hit the lift right at the end, right before time expired, but never was able to add weight to the barbell, like was kind of just stuck there. And after the event was over, I had like really bad pain in the back of my knee on my left knee. And I thought that I had, you know, damaged my knee or dislocated or something. And they had, um, they had somebody with a table set up at the competition. And so I had them do some massage and stuff on my hamstring and work on it a little bit. And it felt good enough that I was able to do the last event, which was like a Jerry can, um, farmer hold for a certain amount of time. And then we had to do a bunch of devil press with 50 pound dumbbells. So did that 
And then the following day, um, I was in really, really bad pain, uh, but I thought it was just residual soreness from the event. So like the day after that was back in the gym, like training the volume, training the intensity and just not really caring about it. And I did that from, so that competition was in November and I did that until January. And in January, I was doing a rowing and kettlebell swing workout, heavy kettlebell swing workout with rowing. And my first kettlebell swing at the bottom of the swing, I felt a snap in my lower back and almost immediately collapsed on the floor. Yeah. And, uh, I had the worst back spasms of my life and, um, had somebody, you know, get me up. Like I sat in a chair, I tried to walk around a little bit. I couldn't walk at all. And, um, I almost like, I don't know if it was like adrenaline or what, but I went straight out to my truck and I, I tried to drive home and there was, uh, two points on my way home that I had to pull over and actually like get out of the truck because sitting was like excruciating. I was was afraid that I wasn't going to be able to drive or that I was going to crash or something because I could barely keep my eyes open. I was in so much pain. Oh geez. Yeah. I was impressed you'd be able to get out of the truck. Like I've had, I've had crazy back pain where, yeah, I got into my truck Drove somewhere and then I opened the door and I thought, well, crap. Yeah. I don't know how I'm going to get out of here. Yeah. Cause I can't, I, I'm in so much pain that I ended up just falling. I actually just fell out of it. Yeah. I just fell out cause I couldn't. That's get what out. I did when I got home. So I, I pulled up in the street across from my house and I actually just laid the chair back in my truck and I laid there for like half an hour because I was afraid I wasn't going to be able to get out of the truck. And then finally I got up, was able to get inside. I laid on the couch and I took some ibuprofen immediately and it never got better. And it just honestly, like just kept getting worse and worse and worse overnight. I didn't sleep all night. And the following morning I went to urgent care and, uh, the doctor that saw me, you know, obviously with an x-ray, they're not going to be able to see anything. So I was like, don't even bother doing an x-ray. It's not going to show anything. And he said, well, I still want you to go to the emergency room and get an x-ray. They didn't have an x-ray machine at the urgent care that I was at. Uh, but he did a shot of Toradol and my piriformis, my left piriformis, I did. Um, he gave me a prescription for Flexerol and some other stuff. And he's like, if the Toradol doesn't touch it, then something's wrong. And I, the, the Toradol didn't make any difference at all. Like the, the pain never decreased at all. And so I went straight from urgent care to the emergency room, sat in the emergency room for like two hours, got an x-ray. And of course they're like, well, it doesn't show anything. And I'm like, well, of course it doesn't because it's not, it's not my spine. I didn't have a fracture guys. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, then I text a friend of mine who is a chiropractor in Temecula and a really good friend. And, you know, I said, Dr. Nick, uh, this happened to my back. Um, I've been at urgent care this morning. I went to, I went to the ER and he's like, all right, we'll come, come in right away and come see me. We'll see what we can do. And so I went and saw him and, you know, he was very, very careful with me, obviously didn't want to adjust me at that point and just kind of wanted to see structurally like what was going on. And, and, uh, he said, I think it's best that you go get an MRI. And so he wrote me a script for an MRI, went and got an MRI and, Um, I sat around waiting for the results from the MRI and I got the report and I was sitting in my truck reading the report and I was like, oh, that's not good immediately. And so I took a picture of it and I texted it to him and I said, this is what the report said. And he's like, 
that's the worst disc herniation I've ever seen in my practice. Okay, I was going to say, what did, what did it say? Like, so <laughs> come on, man. I, don't uh, leave me, don't yeah, leave me yeah, hanging, yeah. dude. Yeah. That was the what suspense. Did it say? That was the suspense. Um, so L5S1 was uh, fully extruded. Um, I It was 11 millimeters laterally, I want to say. Um, that is the worst disc. Yeah extrusion i've ever heard like 11 millimeters yeah and even in the report the the radiologist reported that it was it was pretty remarkable um the amount of extrusion and so he he texts me back and i guarantee you i guarantee you in the little room that he's sitting in because there's a bunch of these guys right he's like he was like hey bob you got to come over here man yeah steve grab steve you guys you're not going to believe what i've got here on my screen like legit like they they'll we do stuff like that if we got another practitioner oh, yeah. we see something funky we're like hey you gotta see this one <laughs> this guy's in trouble yeah yeah dude so yeah i mean he he responded back and was like honestly they're probably going to want to do surgery on you as as soon as possible oh, to repair this that's what they would i mean that's that's exactly where they would want to yeah, go with that yeah and so obviously like i had so many emotions going through my mind at that point and uh so he said, well, you know, first things first, let's, you know, let's see if we can address this, um, on our own. And then, you know, if, if you need to consult with an orthopedic, then we'll do that. But, uh, I went back and I saw him and, you know, he was able to adjust me a little bit and we, we approached it very slowly and all the while, like I was in the gym coaching every day. I was still coaching classes. I was still, you know, I have a 10 year old daughter that at the time I had with me, it was like spring break and was trying to take care of her and was in like an incredible amount of pain this entire time and was basically trying to hide it, you know, like was trying to coach my classes and trying to demo movements for my classes and couldn't even like tie my shoes. I basically wore my shoes untied for months because I couldn't bend over to tie them. I would just slip my feet in them and show up to the gym. And so it was funny because I remember at one point, one of my members that was a regular in one of my classes saw my shoes tied and was like, your back must be feeling better. (laughs) And that was the point where I kind of like, I didn't even realize, but I was like, shit, that's like, Sorry. No, um, you're good. It's, it's I'm podcast, like, dude. You can say what you want. My my shoes are tied. Like I did that, you know, and so that was like progress for me. And, um, you know, doc, we we talked, Doctor Nick and myself, about you know exploring some options with stem cell therapy or with PRP or you know alternative treatments. And uh, so I started doing some research around the area and trying to look for providers that did that type of work and and found a, a doctor in Temecula that actually had an integrative practice that he specialized in, in spinal treatment and uh, decompression and stuff like that. And so I went and consulted with him and he said, you know, I think I can get you back to where you need to be without surgery. And I was like, sign me up. And, you know, I didn't have um, insurance that would cover any of that. So I paid $10,000 out of pocket that day. Worth every penny. And I mean, it was like, I'm, I'm giving you like a huge chunk of my savings. Be- yeah. But I was like, I, I need this. Like, this is what I need because I was depressed. Yeah. You know, I'd never been more depressed in my life. And, you know, that, that alongside with the physical, uh, aspect of it was, was really hard for me to overcome. But 
you know, having this conversation with Dr. Bell and him saying like, I can, I can take care of you. Like I know what you're going to get out of this. And so I went through the, I went through his treatment protocol. We did the injections, um, early on I did, uh, some serapin injections, which is a anti, it's a all natural anti-inflammatory. I did some cold laser therapy and a lot of decompression. I was in a, in a decompression table, like three to four days a week in the beginning, it started off very light in the decompression. And then each week added a little bit of weight to it. And, um, this protocol was about six months long. And when I finished the protocol, I was essentially pain-free and, um, at that point was back in the gym and was, uh, I started deadlifting again and hip hinging and, uh, Dave Lipson, who is Camille LeBlanc Basnet's husband, um, had gone through a very similar injury and actually, uh, the program that he went through to rehab himself in the gym and get back to strength training and lead essentially into his bodybuilding career. Um, he, he sold this program and so I bought it and I ran this program and it was, uh, it was great. I mean, I, I got back in, was doing deadlifts from like an elevated surface at 95 pounds, just very, very light hip hinging. How nervous, how nervous were you the first time? dude? I was super nervous. You went to go hip hinge and yeah, I mean, honestly, it was like, I remember what the pain was like. Yeah. And like PTSD, so that man. was always in the back of my mind. Like, I don't want to ever experience that pain again. Yeah. I wasn't necessarily concerned with the movement because I felt like I even more so then knew my body than I did before. And I sure. knew that like, this is pushing it too much or this is just right. And so I'd go through this program and I'd get home and I'd kind of assess like, how, how are you feeling? Do you feel good? Or do you feel like you need to skip a day like and rest? And so I just approached my training that way. And, um, not long after that, probably another two months after that, like got back into some conditioning and, and CrossFit style Metcons on a very modified basis. And, uh, about that time was when I got into hiking and trail running. And so that's how that all started. Dude. Yeah. So you went from not being hardly able to walk, thinking you're going to have to have your back opened up and fused and whatever else. In like 12 months or less, you're running an ultra. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. So pretty much all of all of 2021, um, or I'm sorry, 2020, Yeah. I was re- rehabbing from my back. Perfect year to do it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Dude. So yeah, that's kind of my story with that, and you know, that's my unreal. experience. Was that, now question about doctor was Doctor Bell? Is he a naturopath or is he a regular MD? Is uh, he a, he's a naturopath and a chiropractor. Okay, doctor of chiropractic. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. That's awesome, man. I love to hear. Yeah, good stories like that, dude. So they did okay. So injections and then uh, traction table or decompression table. Decompression table. Yeah. So are you the, are you, are you the x-ray or the MRI that's been going around the internet with it's, the guy who the, the person who has the huge disc and yeah. then like six months later, it's totally re- it, Have you had the MRI? Since? I, I have a follow-up. I did not do a follow-up honestly, but I would be really interested to see what it would look like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, I actually asked Dr. Bell that question, like, should I get a follow-up MRI? And he's like, well, how do you feel? And I said, I it feel doesn't great. matter. And he's like, like, well, then it doesn't matter. Yeah. That's well, what, that's what matters. Well, and a lot of times, like I'll tell people all the time, like, and I've said this multiple times on this, uh, on this me in this medium, like 
I really couldn't care less what your anatomy says, what your MRI says. I don't really care what the imaging says. Like it's, how do you feel? Tons of people walk around with disc herniations and bulges, bulges and extrusions. Right. And it's like a lot of those people don't feel anything. Yeah. And for you, right? Like if we, if you treated your back purely based on your imaging, dude, you'd been in surgery exactly, and you'd have a fused back. Yeah. And who knows if you'd be doing your ultra knowing who you are. Yeah. You probably would have been running an ultra, right? Yeah. But like, but most people won't. And the other thing is, is, is what's really hard is today. And I'm sure you guys see it. You see it in your, you know, especially now with you guys' new gym, right? The foundry, but a lot of people come into the, into the gym and they're like, cool. I want a six pack and I want to get jacked in, um, six weeks. Yeah. Four weeks. Yeah. We're going to have that, make that happen. Right. Exactly. I've been eating clean for two weeks. Where are my apps? Yeah. And then they give up and don't realize that like, so like a guy, like a guy like you, you've laid a foundation for decades Mm -hmm. up to that point. Right. And so you knew how it was going to go and you knew that it was going to take some time, but like most people don't realize that if you want to see progress and gains and whatever, if you want to make improvements, it's time. And it's just time and consistency. Yes. Effort and consistency. Absolutely. And I think even for me, like now when I work with my personal training clients and I had, um, I had a personal training client before I left California that, uh, he was an attorney, um, in his late fifties, uh, was a little overweight, but was a competitive gymnast growing up a very, very good gymnast. And he sits all day long in his office. He sits in the courthouse and he has, um, he sent me a copy of his MRI report because he had really, really excruciating back pain to the point where if he stood up for more than two minutes, his feet would go numb and he would collapse. Mm. And so he never stood anywhere. He w- he'd sit everywhere he went because that was the only position that he had relief in. Yeah. And so I was like, out of curiosity, have you had an MRI? And if so, can you send me the report? I want to take a look at it before we do any training together to make sure that I should even be doing this with you. And, um, he sent me a copy of his MRI and almost every single one of his thoracic, uh, discs was bulging or herniated to a certain extent. And I'm like, all right, well, we've got a lot to work with. Um, so this is going to take some time. And I think he was so fed up with being in pain that he just wanted to do anything. You know, he, he bought a rower for his house and he, he could sit on a rower. So he'd sit there and just row, but he wasn't getting anything out of it and he wasn't feeling satisfied. And, um, his, his wife, who was one of my clients as well, was a, was an avid hiker and she was in the gym doing CrossFit every day and was fit for her age. And I think he, he wanted to be a part of that in some way. Sure. So Um, but yeah, I worked with him for a short time. And I mean, even after the first session that I had with him, he was like, I feel amazing. Like I actually stood up in court today, you know, and, um, I was actually able to object. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, just hearing stuff like that was incredible. And obviously as a trainer, like that's the kind of, those are the kind of testimonials we want. Um, but I would attribute all of my knowledge in that space to what I went through. Yeah. And what I had to, what I had to work on to recover myself. Like I'm able to apply that stuff now with my clients because I it's proven, like I know it works. I've seen it work personally. And so, uh, when people come to me even now in my gym and they say, Oh, my back hurts. I said, well, these are things that you can try that will, that will help your back pain. 
and it's stuff that they have never considered before. And so I'm like, that's a win for me because I, without having gone through that, I may not have known that as a, as a trainer or a coach. And I feel like there are so many coaches and so many trainers out there that don't have that education or maybe have not had that kind of experience. So their, their clients and their members are missing something, Yeah, you know? And I, I feel like, you know, people like you where you know, that's your job and you've got an amazing community that helps funnel your business. And, um, a lot of places don't have that. So, yeah. And we try, you know, and, and, and likewise from my end, I always try to work with and get to know and partner with people like you and, and others in this community, right. Where I go, Hey, you know what? you really need to keep going. I can give you some stuff, but you'd be way better served by working with Will. Yeah. Right. Or working with this person over here. Like I know who you are. I know who that guy is and you guys are going to work well together. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, that's a, it's, I think so much in the fitness space, everybody's so worried about everybody stepping on each other's toes, taking each other's clients, operating outside their practice act and stuff like that. I'm like, some yeah. of the stuff, some of the best stuff that I've learned, I've learned from power lifters and yeah. I've learned from athletic trainers and I've learned from personal trainers. Yeah. Right. And like, just because I've got this D in front of my, you know, yeah. DPT after my name, you know, doesn't mean that I know everything. Yeah. Right. Like I actually listened to a podcast recently that it was really good. They were talking about how it's really important to, as a gym owner, like reach out to your network and go to other gyms and meet their owners and create relationships with them because you may have a specialty in your facility that the other facility doesn't have. And so they have a member walk in and they say, I need, I want to learn Olympic weightlifting. Yeah. Okay. This is a CrossFit gym. I want to learn Olympic weightlifting. And the, and the owner says, you know, we have an amazing program here, but we're not specialists in Olympic lifting, but this gym down the road, yeah. they are good at Olympic weightlifting. They have amazing coaches and they refer that person to that gym. And it's like, at that point, it's not about uh, afraid of losing money or losing no. a member. You're providing what you are meant to be doing is yeah. helping people. Helping people. You're serving people, right? Your service to that community. Like, so for example, like this gym here that, that my office is inside of. Shout out to CrossFit uh, Gateway Fitness, CrossFit Obsession. They have a lot of people here that really love Olympic weightlifting. So they went, okay, great. So a lot of their coaches are USA weightlifting certified. And then they went all in and hired a specific weight Olympic weightlifting coach and they have a Olympic weightlifting class. That's like an hour and a half, two hours, three times a week because that's what you need for Olympic weightlifting. Right now there are other gyms that, you know, they specialize in other stuff, but yeah, you'd be hard pressed. Like I know there's certain things that I'm not particularly awesome at. And if somebody wants that, I know where to send them. Yeah. Or I have people like who, you know, out of network, Cash pay, cash based physical therapy is not the jam that they want to do. Mm-hmm. Well, I happen to know some really great in network insurance based physical therapists that I go, yeah. hey, I can't tell. I've probably in the last year, I've probably sent ten people <laughs> to this other clinic yeah. that originally came to see me, and I'm like, yeah, no, I, I know I can help you, but if that's not the route you guys are wanting to go, 
you got to go see these guys over Excellent. here because yeah. they're phenomenal. Yeah. And so, like, I'm not worried about it. It's yeah. going to come back. It will, yeah. I mean, because they're they're more likely to refer you because of that. Yeah. Because yeah. you helped them. Yeah, and and that's the thing. Like, they may go say, hey, somebody, yeah, somebody talks to them. And like, oh, you should go talk to this guy. He was really, he seemed really cool, but, you know, a little bit outside of my price range or a yeah. little bit of something else, right? Exactly. So are you going to do another, uh, is, is Ultra on your... Is that going to be Ultra in is on my radar. I just don't know when. I think, you know, with this new business this year and focusing all of our energy right now on our business, it's uh, it's kind of on the back burner. But um, my goal is to run 100 miles. Uh, okay. And I know it will get that, happen. Get that belt buckle. Get that belt buckle. Um, I know it'll happen. I just don't know when. And, you know, I, I definitely want to continue running. Um, I saw how much it did for me physically and mentally. Um, and I, yeah, I'm definitely going to do it. I just don't know when your guys' new gym that you just bought because you guys moved, you moved from Arizona. I mean, from California, Yep. you guys bought a a gym and now it's kind of rebranded as, uh, yeah, foundry rebounded as, as the foundry gym, uh, just as of April 1st, actually, it was our first um, official day as Dude, owners there. Tough. Yeah, thank you. It's great. Yeah, so we've been, um, we kind of integrated into the community very softly. We came, uh, was it the end of February, I believe, uh, beginning wow. of March, and spent a full month uh, with a previous owner, um, you know, kind of filtering into classes and working with some of the clientele and the members that were, that were, existing with him for over 10 years. I mean, some of these members that had been with him, uh, were 10 year, 11 year members. And so it was like a family, you know, and, and it was, again, like I talked about with community early on is that that was a really important goal of ours was to come into this community and, and be a part of it first, establish the relationships, you know, meet the people, let them know who we were, and then go through the process of ownership. And so by coming in and coaching some of the classes and, and meeting the members, it really facilitated a soft transition with them. And so um, we took over April 1st officially. And so it's been a few days. Um, what are we today? The 8th? Yeah, and, right. Just yeah. a week, man. Your first full Just week. A, for, first full week. And it went amazing. Um uh, we are, our membership population is, is great. You know, we didn't really lose anybody and, um, it happens in transitions. It does happen. And, you know, change is difficult for everybody. And I think, you know, we worked really hard to come up with a compromise and a system that would allow his current members to stay with us and, and, experience the difference and the change and i think it's going to be good for everybody so we're we're super excited about it so so for people is it i mean because we've you and i have talked a ton about crossfit is it a crossfit gym it is not a crossfit gym uh it's actually a small group uh small group training facility um we are strength based uh and you know i obviously i guess these days the best way to describe it is as functional strength yeah um so, but it, you know, we don't have, we don't have gymnastics rings hanging in our gym. Thank We're gosh. not doing snatches in our gym. And this is, that was really hard for me, by the way, because I am an Olympic weightlifter. I've competed in Olympic yeah. weightlifting. I'm certified by USAW and, yeah. you know, so 
kind of stepping away from that and taking a step back was was needed but at the same time like this population that we're trying to foster is is for longevity and that's our that's our focus with our gym is is building a space that people can train for longevity and we know that strength training is the is the right way to approach that um we do some conditioning workouts that are crossfit like because you know, CrossFit essentially is a name on the door. It's not. Yeah, they did a great a st- job of branding, right? Putting it in a package, right? But but nobody has nobody. You can't you can't copyright, right? Like movement, movement. You can't copyright. Yeah. High intensity interval training. Yeah, and nothing that nothing that CrossFit came out with initially was revolutionary. Like we've been doing these movements for centuries and. Um, you know, they, they found a way to make it a competitive sport and that's what CrossFit did. Um, and I, again, I have nothing against CrossFit. Oh, no, I love um, it. I, I love it's one of my favorite modalities. I love doing CrossFit. I love the community that it builds. I love the movements. I love competing, but there's a right place for it and there's a wrong place for it. And, um, I, th- I think that our goal for our gym is to be a place that somebody like myself that has been very, very competitive or um, has gone through the ringer and like completely beat their body up competing has an outlet. They have somewhere where they can go and they can continue to get stronger. They can um, do a lot of the same movements they were doing before, but in a more controlled manner. Um, with a under, little less ego, a little less ego, <laughs> you know, that are both me and Brett are highly experienced. We have a lot of knowledge between the two of us and both of us have been coaching for, you know, over 20 years now at this point. Yeah. And so it's, I feel like we have a lot to offer. And so we decided to do this in a small community. So we've got, you know, our classes are only capped at nine people. That's great. So we keep our class sizes small that the, so that the instruction is, it feels more personal. Um, we do very specific and targeted warmups and, and, uh, prep movements before we even get into training. Um, our training programs are methodical and they're planned ahead of time. And you know, we, we kind of consider every member's ability when we're, when we're in the gym every day planning for what we're going to do. Yeah. You know, so, um, so it should be a space that somebody like myself could walk into and, and train and get better. Okay. And at the same time, it could be a space where somebody that has never experienced fitness in their life, maybe, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 pounds overweight and has never set foot in a gym and they walk in the door. We want that person to feel just as comfortable as that athlete that came in the door right in front of them and feel like a space that they can learn and they could grow and they can, you know, experience fitness for what it is Yeah, and be a part of a cool community at the same time. Dude, I love that. Um, so where can, if people want to find you guys, where can they find you on so the internet uh, or wherever? Yeah, so we're in Queen Creek, uh, at the inter- near the intersection of Power and Germain. It's 18625 South 187th Place. Um, pretty easy location to find. We've got a really cool space. Um, so, yeah, we'd love for anybody to come out and, and uh, try a class with us and see what they think. And then what are you guys at on, on, on the gram? 
We are at the Foundry Gym. Okay. QC underscore QC. The at the Foundry Gym. At the Foundry Gym underscore QC. Okay. And then and we'll put all this stuff, what we'll links into this to like show notes and things. And then do you awesome. guys do you guys do face have a Facebook page too or no? Yeah, Facebook is at the Foundry, Foundry Gym, Gym QC. Okay, so the same. Yeah, it's same the same. Thing. Cool. Yeah, man. So if you guys are looking for if anybody out there in the Queen Creek, Gilbert, Chandler, East Valley's looking for a spot that a little less a uh, little less intense than maybe your CrossFit gym or you want to try functional fitness in a smaller group setting, go check out the Foundry Gym, guys. Will, thanks for stopping in, dude. Thanks so much, Brig. I appreciate it, man. It's awesome. Now I sound like a moron while I try to find the stop button.